As you can tell, tonight is Go Astros Night. We have something to celebrate here in Houston. So before we get started, I'll just remind you of a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, uh, one thing, we announced it th three or four weeks ago, but uh, we put together a, uh, a class with the uh, 360 Tactical Training Group for uh, tactical pistol training. It's an all-day course. I think it starts about 8 in the morning, goes to about 4.30 in the afternoon. And the range where the shooting takes place is on their website, 360 Tactical Training, has the supplies, everything you need. We have four. We need to have a minimum of five for the class to make. The class is November 11th, a week from this Saturday, and it is uh, the cost is 225. It's 325 to buy ammo because you use about 500 rounds in the in the training. And uh, these guys train police. They tr train law enforcement. They train uh, military. They're really solid, um, solid people. So anyway. Uh, if you're interested, we have information. Uh, we sent out an email today, and then there should be, um, if you have any other information, you can contact me. But we need to have at least one more person sign up in order for that, that class to go. The other thing that's coming up is when we get into December, on December the 5th, there will be no Bible class that night because that's pre-trib rapture study group meeting in Dallas, that conference, and so I will be up there. And then on the 10th, which is a Sunday that follows that, that's when we're going to have our annual Christmas uh, luncheon and prayer time here at the church. And then, I don't know what else is going on, Alan, did I miss anything? I guess that that's about it. Church, I mean, Christmas this year is going to be on a Monday, so we will have uh, communion on instead of having a Christmas Eve service on Sunday morning, we will also have have uh, have communion. I think that's about it for announcements. Now, as you can tell from the slide up on the screen, we are uh, celebrating the Astros' victory in the World Series. Now, some of you haven't been in Houston as long as I have. One or two of you have, but but the. If you don't know your history, the Astros were not always the Astros. They were originally the Colt 45s, and that was the first two years, 62 season, 63 season. And I don't know, did you go see the, Tom, did you see the Colts? Oh, yeah, yeah I, I remember going in the spring of 62 when they first started going to the old Colt Stadium and fighting off the mosquitoes and uh, sitting out there in the hot, humid air and, and going to those ball games. And then and when I was in high school, I worked at the Astrodome a lot, and so I got to go to all the games I wanted to for free, so that was great. But they were always they, – they and the Mets came into the National League the same year, and they were always in the cellar. I think it was that way pretty much through the 80s. And after a while, as much as you wanted to uh, – to root for Houston, it was just a losing proposition. So it's 56 seasons coming, and they have uh, finally won the World Series. So that is something for this city to really uh, get excited about, and especially a year when we've had such devastation with uh, Hurricane Harvey. And I, I was, I've been real proud of the way Houstonians have handled uh, adversity, and also I didn't hear anything negative about um, how any Houstonians treated any Dodger fans uh, when they were here during the World Series, and I've heard a lot of good reports from different people about how well the, 
how well Houston handles the problems with hurricanes and the churches just come out. And that's a great testimony. So the fact that we treat the opponents in, in sports venues with uh, grace and kindness and generosity and that we uh, help people who are going through adversity is a great uh, testimony, I think, to not that everybody in Houston's a Christian or it's a great Christian city because it's not, but we do have a lot of churches here that at least teach some basic things about Christianity, and I think that has an impact on how the people in this city respond. So that is just one of the great things to uh, uh, to be excited about. So anyhow, even the Houston School District closed down for tomorrow for the big parade. Uh, so they're uh, they're taking this win very very seriously. A whole lot better than that last appearance in the in the uh, World Series in, what was that, 2005 when they got skunked by the uh, White Sox. So anyway, this is something for us to uh, to shout about. So we're remembering that tonight. That's why a lot of people here have on their Astros T-shirts and baseball caps and everything. And, and so uh, we're ready to study the Word now. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, as is our custom. Scripture teaches that Christ paid the penalty for sin, canceled the debt. The sin penalty was wiped out, but we're still born spiritually dead. To be born spiritually alive, we have to trust in Jesus. That's the only condition. That's the only thing necessary is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But if we sin afterward, we lose that fellowship, that walking by the Spirit that Scripture talks about. And so we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge to God our sin. And instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. That's the great grace truth of Scripture is forgiveness of sin before God. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you are uh, spiritually prepared to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that we have the time, the opportunity to uh, study your word. We're thankful for the great opportunity this city has to celebrate with the victory of the Astros. I know many people in this city were praying for them and uh, praying for a win, and we're thankful that we can experience that and just have that great joy. But Father, as uh, it brings so many people out together in the uh, celebrations, we pray that there'll be opportunities also to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to share our faith with other people. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word. We pray for those who aren't here. There are some that are in this congregation facing very serious illnesses, and we pray for their strength, for their courage, for their trust in you, for their witness and testimony to their friends and family. Father, we pray for those who take care of them, that they will uh, help them and encourage them with your word, and that they would have a a great tenacity in uh, persevering and caring for those that are having such uh, difficult end-of-life issues. Now, Father, we pray for us that we might be focused on your word tonight and encouraged as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are in First Peter, but before we get into our passage, there's something else that we need to talk about. And that is what this day is. Today is November 2nd. I asked a question Sunday morning about what else was going to happen on October 31st because it's, most people think it's Halloween, but it's Reformation Day. And I said, what else happened on October 31st? Two people came up to me, and they were close. They were close. They were on the paper, but they weren't in the bullseye. What's significant about October 31st is related to today. Today is the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Balfour Declaration, okay? And here is a slide with the uh, picture of Sir Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary for England during the uh, time of World War I, was a member of the War Council of the British um, government. And... um, the, actually, the verbiage that was put into this letter was finally voted on and approved by the council on October 31st. The letter to Lord Rothschild, Lionel Rothschild, who was one of the major leaders in the uh, Jewish uh, Federation, the Zionist organization in England at the time, uh, was sent this letter in response to a question that the leadership of the uh, Jewish community in England asked because at this time in World War I, the British troops were coming up from Egypt. They would cross the Sinai, and it looked like they would be coming into uh, historic Palestine at that particular time. And they, in, back in June, they asked the government, what are you going to do if you seize control of this territory in the Middle East uh, away from the Ottoman Empire, because this had not been an autonomous country since the time the Romans destroyed Judea back in A.D. 70. It had always been part of some other uh, government, part of the Roman Empire, uh, later as part of uh, various uh, Muslim empires, but it was never an autonomous region, so they wanted to know, what are you going to do with it? And so this was a response to this, expressing uh, their desire. It was not a a, uh, a legal document. It was basically a policy statement, and it was uh, sent on November the 2nd, 1917, 100 years ago today, and then it was first published in the paper on November the 7th. So that's a week-long period where I would hope that a lot of people are reading about this. Now, some people are reading about it because, for example, Al Jazeera published an article last week that shows their propagandized version on the history of Israel and what was going on uh, during this particular time. 
and what was really behind, according to them, the Balfour Declaration. Of course, they get it all wrong, and they don't understand their history like a lot of people. If more people understood history, and you don't just understand history by reading secondhand history, you have to read the primary documents, what those people who were involved said and did so that you understand uh, firsthand accounts. But in this letter, Balfour writes, I have much pleasure in conveying to you, that is to Rothschild and the Jewish community, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations. Now, Zionism is simply a movement that, that, that focused on the return of the Jewish people to their historic national homeland. Okay, it had nothing, had to do with nothing else other than the Jewish people have a historic homeland that God gave them, gave to Abraham, and that they were removed from by the Romans in A.D. 70. That was the second removal. And that they had a historic right to their national homeland. And this was in an era not too long after, at the end of the 19th century, with the rise of nationalism, which is a really good word that's being perverted by some today. And it just it's a biblical idea. God's, in Acts 17, Paul says that God gave people certain boundaries and, and established those. And God is the one who established nations and established borders, and those borders are designed to provide security to individual national groups. That's, that's biblical. And so... This was part of that general movement. The Germans had united under Bismarck, various German states back in the end of the uh, uh, 1800s. The Italians in 1870 united uh, as well, and other uh, ethnic groups uh, united and established their own nations. And and at the same time, the Arabs had a great um, movement from Arab nationalism to be independent of the Ottoman Empire and also of any any European. So that's the background. So the statement goes like this. It was approved by the cabinet of, of England, and it says, quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Now, Palestine was not a technical term. It, there was no nation. There was no border. It was just general a general region that was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was called Syria-Palestine, and it and part of modern Palestine, and Israel, part of uh, modern Jordan. All of this was part of this sort of anomalous region in the Middle East. And they were to establish in Palestine a national home for the Jewish people and will use their uh, best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, that be the Arabs and Druze and others, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So that's the heart of it. Now, what you'll usually hear from people who are anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and anti-Zionist, which are basically synonymous, synonymous concepts, is that this had no legal status. You're exactly right. No legal status at all. It was simply 
uh, an expression of British desire. At the time, they had no control. They had not had their military hadn't conquered this territory. It was simply a hope and a dream. What gave it value was something that few people understand. At the end of World War One, at the end of World War One, just like at the end of any war, you basically have a closing uh, statement. Okay, like when you buy a house. And part of what happens when you close on a house is there's going to be a survey of the property to make sure your property lines are all correct and in order and to make sure there's a title search so that the accurate title for this property is is on record and filed and, and that you have a clear deed of title to the place. And that's what happens at the end of a war. You, so you have a war, World War One between Germany, Austro-Hungary, and the Allies, France, and and uh, Belgium and Holland and England and and the Japanese and are and the Italians as well are fighting the Austro-Hungary Empire in Germany and initially um, uh, Russia. So that's the issue. So what what has to happen at this point at the end of the war is they have to decide who now owns what real estate and redraw all the boundary lines, which is what they did in Paris. They redrew all the boundary lines uh, in, in Germany and all of these, and that's the legal procedure. Since the Ottoman Empire was allied with the, uh, with the Germans and the hung, uh, Austria-Hungarian Empire, they too had to be broken up. It was falling apart, and so those nations were given the authority by the all of the powers that won to redraw the borders in the Ottoman Empire. They didn't have time to do that in Paris in 1918 and 1919, so they uh, met in 1920 in a place in Italy called San Remo. This was all part of the covenant of the League of Nations. And in that covenant that was established in 1919, it said that the these peoples who were in these areas where there hadn't been any nations or national government or anything before, that they would come under a tutelage of these European powers whose responsibility it was to uh, help them organize and become self-governing. And they were called mandatories because they were given a legal mandate by the UN to rule those, those nations. And so when they came together in 1920 at San Remo, you had the four principal powers of the Allied Nations plus the U.S. as an observer because we had never declared war against the Ottoman Empire. So we weren't part of that. It was just uh, Japan and Italy, France and Britain. And they came together. Now, part of what came out of that was the British mandate. It's a legal document. There was a French mandate that was given to the French. The French were given authority over Lebanon and Syria, and the British were given authority over Syria, Palestine, and Mesopotamia, which we now call Iraq. And so in the mandatory document, this is from the preamble, and it's important to know who wrote the preamble. The preamble was written by Arthur Balfour. And in the preamble, he quotes specifically from the, from the Balfour Declaration. He says, the principal allied powers have also agreed that the mandatory, that would be Britain, 
should be responsible for putting into effect the declaration originally made on November 2nd, 1917 by the government of His Britannic Majesty and adopted by the said powers. In other words, until this point, it's just a wish and a dream and a policy statement. But at this point, the verbiage is taken in uh, in total by the... Um, uh, by this document, which is voted on and approved by 56 nations in the League of Nations, and at that point it becomes international law. And it goes on to say that there would be the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and it goes on to define, just quotes it, uh, quotes it verbatim. There was one change that was made in this document. <laughs> Later on, in our 51 nations signed off on this, and, and in there, in the preamble, there was one change that was made instead of, here it quotes it verbatim and it says, um, a national home for the Jewish people, but when it is described later on in the document, Balfour says, <clears throat> this was the original language that they had wanted, but the cabinet debated it, and they took it out, changed it. It was originally designed to say reconstituting. What does that imply? That implies that they had a historic right, that it was previously their country. Reconstituting their national home in that country, that defines national home as being their ancient nation. And when they were asked... When they had these interchanges, the uh, I believe it was the Italian minister asked uh, Lloyd George and says, what do you mean by Palestine? And Lloyd George's response is from Dan to Beersheba, which is the biblical term describing the borders of, of Israel, from, from Dan in the far north to Beersheba in the south. And they would have just pulled out a Bible map at that time to show what that what that meant, it was a return to the biblical uh, boundaries of the nation, and so this is what was established uh, by the Balfour Declaration, and it's abused by a lot of people who don't like it because it was a recognition, it was a legally legal document incorporated into uh, San Remo resolutions, incorporated into the British Mandate, and the British Mandate is still in effect. And at the end of the, uh, during World War II, when the League of Nations was coming to a close and was going to be replaced by the United Nations, the, in the documents closing down the UN, I mean the League of Nations and going to the UN, the UN Charter says that they are bound by all legal treaties that had been entered into by the League of Nations which meant that they were bound by international law to uphold this. The problem is they never did. They never, the uh, British had been ignoring it for about 15 years, and uh, this is what's happening in our world today, is that people don't like a law, they just ignore it. We've gone from moral relativism to legal relativism, and that is wrong. We are a people. What makes us civilized coming out of our Judeo-Christian heritage is that we are a people of law. If you don't like the law, there are ways that are set forth in the law to change the law. That's how we get amendments to the uh, Constitution, and you go through these legally defined ways 
to uh, change the law. And we've done that many, many times in the history of this nation. But when you just violate the law and nobody calls you on it and nobody holds you accountable, that is barbarism. That is uncivilized. That just leads to mass chaos and disorder. And this is happening. This is why we have all these problems in the Middle East is because the powers that should have insisted on legal obedience uh, didn't have the guts to do it, and they backed off. And so everything just deteriorates, and nobody's in charge. And the same thing happens is happening in Europe with the influx of of all these uh, illegal so-called refugees and the same thing's happening here in the United States. There has to be the rule of law and the law, whether you like it or not, has to be followed and it has to be enforced. Otherwise, you just deter- you're just no better than, than barbarians and chaos. Okay, that's the value of the Balfour Declaration and we celebrate its 100th anniversary today. Now let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 to 22. So I stated last week in my introduction to this section, I said this is a really difficult passage to interpret. That doesn't mean that what you have heard being taught in this passage is not true, but it's, there are difficulties. Uh, I made a comment last week about Martin Luther saying that it's a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. And there are a lot of scholars who could go along with that. Millard Erickson, who's a contemporary theologian and scholar, has said that there's at least 180 different exegetical combinations. Now, exegesis is when you look at this passage and you have to break down the words in terms of understanding the word meaning. Could the word mean this? Could the word mean that? Uh, You look at the grammar. You look at the syntax. You look at the phrases like in the flesh and by the spirit. In the original Greek, those are dative nouns. In what sense uh, are they to be understood? What's the nuance there? Uh, That is what you have to decide as an exegete. And there's about, uh, depending on the grammar you're looking at, 22 to 28 different uses of the the dative. And so you have to make those decisions. And so there's a lot of debate uh, that goes on there. There's also a little textual problem here where it says, bring us to God in the Textus Receptus, which is the basis for the King James translation, it says, uh, bring you to God. Uh, it's probably uh, bring us to God because of various things. The witnesses are split. Some, majority, some of the majority documents, the Byzantine documents, support one, some support the other. And so contextually, um, it's probably bring us to God. That's probably the... Uh, the our, uh, excuse me, bring you to God, should be bring you to God, as you have in New, uh, New King James. The Textus Receptus is a minority set of uh, majority text documents. The majority of those would, uh, would go along with bringing you to God. That's what he's, Paul is talking about here, is how this applies to those uh, to whom he is, uh, he is writing. Now, let's uh, review just a little bit about the background here. If you look at the previous verse in verse 17, 
Paul ended the previous paragraph by saying it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's the principle. And that's a hard principle for a lot of people and a lot of Christians to apply because we would rather do uh, a, a right thing a wrong way operating on pragmatism, thinking that the end justifies the means. But what Peter is saying here and what the rest of the scripture emphasizes is a right thing has to be done the right way or you've destroyed your integrity in the process. You can't violate uh, principles of ethics because you think that the end justifies the means. Jesus did not do that. That's what the important point here is. He immediately goes into an explanation at the beginning of verse 18, and it begins with a Greek phrase, which means that he is explaining 317 and why it's the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. And that includes what you do and why you do it and how you do it. That's one of the greatest difficulties in modern relativistic uh, Western civilization is this idea that the end justifies the means. And I used to have uh, uh, fascinating arguments with students and professors when I was in seminary. Usually it was uh, Tommy Ice and me going into these kinds of things because people get the idea that, well, if you do something and it brings a lot of people to church, it must be the right thing because look at those results. But the, what, the way you're doing it can violate your basic principles of Scripture. So they would often be doing a right, have a right goal, but they're going about it the wrong way. And they think that methodology, how you do what you do, is neutral. But there's nothing in God's creation that's neutral. We have to look at whether the way we do it is right or wrong. And Americans have no clue about this. Uh, They've become pragmatists since the end of the 19th century. And too many Americans and businessmen, it's all about, is it successful? Does it get more people? Does it make more sales? If it does, it's right. And if it doesn't, then it's wrong. If it builds a big church uh, and attracts a lot of people, then it must be the right thing to do. The only problem is when you get into the Bible and you see the more Jesus teaches about truth, the more people leave. And so by the time you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's got 11 men left because he's doing the right thing the right way and people don't want that. They want him to bring in the kingdom and destroy the Romans. That would be doing a right thing in a wrong way. That is freeing the people. He's going to free them spiritually, and they just don't understand it. They want want to have the crown without the cross. And so uh, Jesus does everything right, and everybody leaves. And in modern pragmatism, modern, what, what 99.9% of churches and pastors operate on is he, he had to be doing things wrong because if he did it right, he'd have a big church. But the reality is the reason we have so many big churches today is they're doing things wrong. They don't teach the word other than if they do, it's just skimming the surface. They don't dig down into the deep things of the word of God because the more you teach, 
what God expects of people, the fewer people will hang around and and listen. And so we need to get into uh, into these particular areas. We have to understand what we do that what we do and how we do it is just as important as our end goal. So Peter explains this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Don't tell me that you're justified in acting a certain way because you're a victim. Nobody was a greater victim of sinful man than Jesus. And Jesus didn't protest. Jesus didn't strike back. In fact, when, um, as we have seen in our study in, in Matthew, when Peter strikes out and cuts off the ear of Malchus, uh, the high priest's servant, Jesus picks it up, says, is it okay if I put this back? And puts it back on the guy's head, and he's perfectly healed. He is not out to justify himself. And that is a problem today in the way many things are handled. So Jesus is the pattern. He is the one who suffered once for sins. We've talked about that. It's not like the Jewish sacrificial system where you have sacrifice after sacrifice all year round. It's not like the Roman Catholic system where you have Christ being re-sacrificed every time there's a mass. It's a once-for-all death on the cross. He is the righteous one who dies for the unrighteous ones for the purpose of bringing us to God. We covered the doctrines of substitutionary atonement and reconciliation. And that brings us to the last uh, part of this phrase. I'm going to just skip these slides. He might bring us to God, that's reconciliation, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive together, uh, being made alive by the Spirit. Now, what I've done underneath this is I've got one line here that's the Greek, Underneath that, I have the transliteration of the Greek. Now, I know you can't read the Greek, but you can pick up what I'm going to say in just a minute. And down here is how it should be translated. So the Greek says, uh, thanatothes, which is a passive verb meaning to be put to death. And it has this little, what we call a particle. And it should be translated whenever you have a men and then here you have a de. Whenever you have a men de construction, what that means is you're, you're offering two contrasting things. You're saying on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. Okay, so it indicates a clear contrast. So it's saying he was put to death on the one hand, and then it's this there's no article here it's just the noun from uh, sarx for for flesh and it's in the dative case well a dative case can mean location in the in the sphere of the spirit it can mean or, or and it can mean that sphere it can mean means by means of the spirit uh it can mean reference with reference to the spirit there there's about 20 two different op options technically, but only about four or five are really possible, uh, really would make sense. And it's set up here, and in the next line that's exactly parallel to it, you have a verb that's the opposite of thanatothes. Thanatos means death. Uh, Zoopoethos means to be uh, made alive. So you have on the one hand put to death 
by the flesh or with the flesh or in the flesh, and on the other hand, made alive with reference to the Spirit, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, to the Spirit, something of, of that sense. And I've um, indicated that kind of translation down here. So when I talked about how how um, Miller Erickson says there's 180 different exegetical options, if you know probabilities and things, you can translate it uh, this dative one way, you can translate that dative another way. You got about eight options to translate the first one one way, eight options to translate the other way. Then you work out all the probabilities, and all of a sudden that gets you maybe 25 or 30 different options, and that's just for those, those two words. So there's a huge amount of debate and discussion about how these should be understood. And one of the... Um, one of the big mistakes done here is that they think that because there's this parallelism, even though it's antithetical parallelism, that they should be translated in the same way. But that makes a, a bit of a mistake. That's a bit of a problem and causes people to uh, go off into some rather strange areas of interpretation. Now, one of the things that I want to point out here as we go through this is when I teach, I like to go into these kinds of details. Now, some people don't like it when pastors go into details, and there's a problem with that. Why is it important for a pastor to go into these kinds of details and explaining why he translates the passage a certain way and why you should come to understand that? And that takes us all back to when we were kids and one of, at least one of my favorite things, as you know I'm being sarcastic, and that is math. And we all know that at some point in our education, you have to take math tests. And so you're given a math problem to solve. Now, sometimes if you're somewhat intuitive or you're you're bright with numbers or something you might look at that and you might say I don't know what the answer is and you just write down the answer and you get the answer right and you turn your test in and the teacher takes off because you didn't what you didn't show your work see what I'm doing here is I'm showing the work it's the same thing because there's a lot of pastors who sometimes, when they look at a passage, and right now I'm writing a technical paper for pre-trib on uh, Olivet Discourse, and there are a lot of dispensational pre-trib theologians and pastors who have the right theological framework. But what if they showed their work, it's really bad. They get the come eventually to the right conclusion in terms of their broad theology, but they will misinterpret the passage and mishandle it because they're getting the right answer from their theology, but not they're not doing the right thing when they show their work. And so it's important to understand that. Now, why is that? It's because the Bible tells us somewhere like five verses ago or three verses ago, See, I'm numerically challenged. Uh, <clears throat> four verses ago. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you in verse 15. 
Now, to give an answer means to explain why you did something. So the Bible tells you that we're to show our work. You know, you just can't go to church and say, well, I just want to know the bottom line, pastor. And if a pastor responds and says, okay, I'm just going to give you the bottom line, which is what 99% of these churches do, then he's violating Scripture because he's not showing his work. And part of the problem is because a lot of pastors, A, aren't trained to show their work. B, they don't know how to show their work. They're kind of like I am solving a quadratic equation. They're pretty helpless. We have to show our work. And a pastor should show his work because if I'm going to stand in the pulpit and say this is what the Bible says, you should be asking me, well, what about this and what about that? How can you say this is what the Bible says? And so I'm showing you. And I go into these details from the original languages to help us work through this because it's not necessarily simple, simple material. And one of the questions that we have to resolve is when you see this word here, spirit, this is, right here is the original, the word in the original language. Now, is that capitalized in the Greek? No, it's not capitalized. Does that mean anything? No, that doesn't mean a thing. Because in Greek, they didn't capitalize. You had some documents that were called minuscules, and that from the word, where we get our word minus, and it means smaller, and they're just all lowercase letters. There's no space between the words. It's just all lowercase letters. You have other ancient manuscripts that were called uncials, and that refers to all capitals. So they didn't just capitalize some words, like at the beginning of a sentence or a proper noun. They either capitalized every letter with no spaces in between, or they just put lowercase letters. So when you look at this word in the original language, you have to decide, is this talking about one of eight different ways in which the word pneuma is used in the Greek New Testament? It can refer to a person's attitude. It can refer to the way a person thinks. It can refer to the immaterial part of man, which just summarizes everything, his soul and spirit. It can refer to that part of his immaterial nature that is regenerated when he trusts in Christ, which we would call the human spirit. It can refer to the Holy Spirit. It can refer to demons and fallen angels as it does in the very next verse. So you have to go through and say, well, what is that? Is that talking about the Holy Spirit or the human spirit? Now, I'll tell you something. I'm not being critical of him because uh, I've appreciated his ministry and I've learned a lot from him. But there, there are some disagreements among good men on different things. And in his commentary on First Peter, Dr. Uh, Fruchtenbaum takes this as a lowercase spirit. Now, this is kind of an interesting case because the way that it's a case where I think a person does a, a <clears throat> comes to the right conclusion or a right conclusion the wrong way, okay? This is a position that's out there on this verse, and that is that on the cross, Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He also died spiritually. 
Between 12 noon and 3 p.m., Jesus is separated from the Father when the Father imputes the sins of mankind to Jesus. So Jesus is separated from the Father. That's the basic definition of spiritual death. But then the idea of this translation or interpretation is that before he dies physically at 3 p.m., the punishment for sin is ended. At 3 p.m., God the Holy Spirit regenerated Jesus or brought him back into fellowship with God, and he is, as it were, born again. He's not really born again. That's a bad term because there's a, there's a whole born-again Jesus heresy movement. But that's what, what he's saying is that this made alive by uh, in the Spirit, that is, his human spirit, he is now in a spiritually restored relationship with God that occurred on the cross. And so between the time that he, his body goes in the grave and the time of the resurrection, Jesus went to uh, Tartarus and made this victorious proclamation. Now, see, a lot of that is we can, we can agree with. He, at the bottom line, he's got some point Jesus, after he pays the penalty for sin, goes and announces that the payment is made to those demons that are incarcerated in Tartarus. But he gets there by what I would consider to be a questionable uh, translation of pneuma here. In 1 Peter, Peter primarily uses pneuma to refer to the Holy Spirit. So you'd have to give a, a convincing rationale as to why this would not be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the very next verse says that by whom, that is by the, this human spirit, by this spirit, he also went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, I have trouble making that work if this is talking about Jesus' human spirit being restored to fellowship with God, that by it he goes to pro preach to the spirits in prison. So, the, and the other problem you get into is probably 80% of scholars will say that however you handle this dative, it has to be the same for this dative. But there's a few people who argue, no, that's not necessarily so. There's no grammar rule written anywhere that says that. There's nothing that mandates that. And if you look at the whole phrase, and that's one of the things that has really happened uh, in biblical language studies in the last um, in the last 30 years with the with with uh, computer studies. We used to primarily just do word studies. What does this word mean? Where is it used? You get out your concordance, you look at, up at the word for righteousness, you see that it's dikaiosune, and you're going to look for every use of dikaiosune in the Greek text. Or you see it's a word for love. There's different words for love. There's uh, uh, for a verb, there's agapao, there's phileo, uh, philos, or agape. You look up that. But how would you... How would you look for a phrase? How would you look for every time that the Bible uses faith, hope, and love, like it does in 1 Corinthians 13, 13? 
How would you study this and say, I want to know every place in the Bible where faith, hope, and love, these those three words, are used within five words of each other? How would you do that without a computer? It would take a really long time, or you're like some of these really brilliant Greek scholars that came out of the Victorian education system who virtually memorized all of the Greek New Testament, and then they could click it off, but it would take them more than uh, five or ten seconds like you can do with a computer today. And often what we learn is that a word in isolation may have one meaning, but when you put that in a phrase like kingdom may have one meaning, but when you put it in a phrase like kingdom of God, well, you're really not trying to figure out what kingdom of and God means. You want to know what that phrase means and how that phrase is used. So it's really important to, uh, to search phrases. But that was almost impossible before you had the advent of computers. But one of the things you should notice here is we have the phrase uh, with Sarki there in, in verse 18 and Numadi, the dative form of Numa also. But skip down to verse to verse 1 in chapter 4. That is what develops out of this section. You have the phrase, therefore. So it's a conclusion. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us. Where's that idea found? It's found in 3.18. So 4.1 is going to pick up on the ideas that are in 3.18. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, how did he suffer for us? in the flesh. See, that phrase comes right out of verse 18. Peter is taking certain ideas in verse 18 and restating them with the same vocabulary in 4.1. And then he says, since this is true, back to verse 3.18, arm yourselves with the same mind. So you have to learn to think a certain way. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, we'll have to deal with that when we get there. So we look at this, and we have to say, wow, how do we understand this? And it's really important that when we, when we look at this, that we look at uh, the context. And there's a couple of different things that we see when we look at this particular context. And the first thing that we see is that he's talking about Christ as an example of suffering unjustly. Now, what's going on? He's writing to these Jewish background believers in north-central Turkey. And they're being persecuted. There's a lot of opposition that they're facing because they are trusting in Jesus as their Messiah. And so they are in this pressure cooker situation of opposition and persecution, and Peter is telling them how to live. He's not telling them how to get to heaven when they die. So let's go to this chart, a familiar chart for everybody. Is the word saved? See, we're going to run into the word saved down in verse uh, 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. 
how often do you think the average reader reads that and thinks it's talking about going to heaven? Whenever they see the word saved, they think that the Bible's talking about going to heaven. But the Bible uses that word for saved, uh, sozo in the Greek, to talk about getting healed from an illness, uh, getting a, a demon cast out. Uh, it's used for, uh, it's almost a synonym at times for peace. It can be used for being delivered from difficult circumstances. And it's also used about getting into heaven when you die. So we break it down this way. Phase one is, means to be saved from a penal, the penalty of sin. And so at that instant that we trust Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sins, we receive the imputation or we're credited with his righteousness. We're robed in his righteousness. God looks at us, sees Christ's righteousness, not our sin, declares us to be just. And in that instant that takes just a nanosecond, we are declared righteous. That's the doctrine we study Tuesday night, the justification by faith alone, which is what Martin Luther recovered, which is the, the uh, cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. But that takes place in a nanosecond. That's saved from the penalty of sin. Instead of going to the eternal lake of fire, we go to heaven. But then the word saved is used in the Bible to talk about being saved from the power of sin. And that relates to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So when we look at passages that use the word saved, we have to say, is this talking about saved from eternity in the lake of fire? Or is this talking about being saved and experiencing the benefits of our salvation in our spiritual growth and maybe being delivered from certain uh, negative circumstances in this life. And then the word saved is also used of the uh, end game in human life when we die physically and we're immediately face to face with the Lord and we're glorified. We're, we're saved from the presence of sin, no more sin nature. All right? So when we look at, the, the, at this passage, and I want to give an overview here. When we look at this, the illustration that's given between verse 19 and verse 22 has to do with Noah and the Noahic flood. And there's a couple of, there's three key words that are used here. Saved, he's, it's an antitype which now saves us. It's the word baptism, and most people immediately think of it going into water, but at the time of Noah, the people who are baptized with Noah are dry. They're in the ark. The people who get wet and immersed in the water are the people who drown outside the ark. So baptism doesn't mean get wet. It has the idea of being identified with something or someone. Okay, we won't get to this for a while, but I'm giving you the overview. And then the third word is the word that has to do with having a good conscience. Now, Peter uses that phrase for good conscience several times in here. For example, back in 3.16, after he says, uh, sanctify the Lord, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you, he says you do it with a good conscience. That means you're not... Uh, using an end justifies the means argument. 
you're going to do the right thing the right way in order to glorify God and have a clear conscience so that when people ridicule you, when they defame you as evildoers, when they say bad things about you, you're not going to retaliate in kind. So you're going to have a good conduct in Jesus Christ. So those three words together tell us that whatever's going on in this illustration with Noah, it's not talking about, not talking at all about getting into heaven when you die. It's talking about being delivered from hostile circumstances. So when we think about that in the illustration of Noah, Noah faced external opposition. He preached for 120 years from the time that God called him and told him he was to build an ark until the time he finished it. 120 years went by. Uh, the passage here, uh, or, or excuse me, in, in Second Peter uh, 2, 4 through 5, talks about Noah as a preacher of righteousness. So we know that he proclaimed the truth of God's word and the gospel for 120 years, and nobody listened to it. But they knew what was going to happen. They could see that he's building this enormous ark, and that is a testimony against them. And so he is an example of somebody who is standing firm in the truth and being persecuted and receiving opposition from the people who lived at that time. Now, one of the things we learn, if you go back to Genesis 6, about the people who lived at that time, that a good, goodly number of them were not pure human beings. In Genesis 6, verse 3, we're told that the sons of God, which is always a term for angels, it's a, the, the Hebrew phrase, b'nei ha-elohim. There's a couple of other phrases that get translated sons of God, but they're not b'nei ha-elohim. That phrase always refers to angels. And these b'nei ha-elohim look on the daughters of men and say they are beautiful. And they want to take them as their wives. And so they have the ability to transform their immaterial body into a physical body. We see that with angels at other times. They're able to eat, drink, sleep. And so these sons of God apparently had the ability to, to take on, transform their immaterial bodies to physical corporeal bodies where they could procreate. And so they had intercourse with these human uh, women and they gave birth to this crossbreed. Now, what's wrong with that is that God had promised to, uh, at, uh, to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that the Savior would be the seed of the woman. She's going to be, he's going to be truly human. But Satan's plan is that if he can corrupt the human DNA chain and genetically uh, foul up the chain, then God can never fulfill his promise by providing somebody who's truly the seed of the woman, and they would be a crossbreed mix of half angel, half man, or something uh, something like that. So that introduces another area of opposition. You have angelic or demonic opposition. You have human opposition, and so Noah is facing these two areas of opposition from fallen angels and from the Nephilim, that's what they were called, which is basically a term that just means monsters, and from, um, and from the hum human beings who are unbelievers. So 
you have both human and fallen angel opposition. Those angels are mentioned in this passage. Whatever we say about this passage from verse 19 down through verse 22, it talks about how they are to face opposition and persecution. So however we interpret it, it has to be interpreted within the context of what Peter's talking about. So that's why he brings in what, ha- what Jesus does after he's taken down from the cross, that by means of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who enables him to do this, he goes and he preaches. The word there uh, is not the word evangelizo, which means to give the gospel. It's the word keruso, which means to make a proclamation. And he makes a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, who are these spirits in prison? Second Peter 2.4 t- also tells us about this same incident. It says, if God did not spare the angels who sinned. Now, we only know about two times that angels sinned in the Old Testament corporately. One was the group that followed Satan in his original rebellion and became the fallen angels. And then there's another group that were called the sons of God that had intercourse with uh, human uh, females. So the only option here is the second group. Why? Because if he's talking about all the demons, then all these demons would be in prison and you wouldn't have any demons running around when Jesus is on the earth. So there's obviously a division among the demons or among the fallen angels. They are those that are active and those that have been incarcerated. He casts them down into hell. Bad translation. Uh, I don't like the word hell at all. It comes out of a Norwegian mythology background. It is the Greek word Tartarus, which is a sub set or, or sub area or small area within Hades or Sheol and this is where these demons were incarcerated now that idea was very prevalent in this, this ancient area of Turkey they it was uh, well known there that people during the time of the first century and before were familiar with an apocryphal work it's not a biblical work but it's an apocryphal work called the Book of Enoch. And the Book of Enoch gives all kinds of details about this angelic uh, infiltration that occurred at the time of of Genesis chapter 6. And people in that area, think about where Turkey is, it's just south of of Russia. And so much later on, all those legends and, and much that wasn't biblical was passed on. And if you advance several, uh, quite a few centuries, then you learn about a group of just horrible, uh, barbaric warriors that came out of the East. They were Mongolians. But because they were so barbaric, they were identified by the Slavs, by the Russians, as demons from Tartarus, so they were called Tartars. So when you read history, you will read about the Mongolians who are called by the Russians and Europeans as Tartars. That's from this Greek word Tartarus because they're, they, they are com- being compared to the uh, demons that are locked away in Tartarus. 
That's just a little additional information for your educational uh, edification. They're cast, these demons were cast to Tartarus and delivered into chains of darkness, deep darkness, to be reserved for judgment. They're not allowed to be loose again until the final judgment. And it's connected, this event of their sin is then connected to what happened at the time of Noah in verse 5. They did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. There's our word saved again. Notice it's not talking about Noah getting into heaven. It's talking about delivering him from this angelic assault. Uh, They did not spare the ancient world, but saved or delivered Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, there's a parallel to this, and that's in Jude 6. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. See, that's the same group as the angels who sinned. They don't keep their proper domain. They don't stay in their proper habitation in heaven. They left their abode. And he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness. See, that's the same language that you have in Second Peter 2. He's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then they're compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these. Who's the these? that these are the angels of verse 6. So Sodom and Gomorrah sinned in a way that is similar to the sin of these angels. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was a sexual sin. It was homosexuality. And so uh, in a that, that sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is... Uh, identified or connected to the angels, so that must have been a sexual sin. So this substantiates the Genesis 6 view that the sons of God had intercourse with the women, with the daughters of men. And that, and it goes on to describe um, Sodom and Gomorrah's sexual sin, sexual immorality, and going after, you know, another kind of flesh. Whoa. So there we have a really clear... We'll get back into this. I'm just giving you the overview here. So that the reason we have 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 is it begins to introduce us to one of the most horrific episodes of opposition and persecution of righteous people in all of history. And that is what occurred prior to the flood. And so this is going to then connect us to understanding this analogy between the uh, baptism that occurs with Noah and why you and I can graciously handle opposition and persecution in the Christian life. So this introduces us to another issue that's going to help. Peter says that Paul says a lot of difficult things. Well, I think in this passage, Peter says some difficult things. But there's a passage in Romans 6 that uses a lot of the same vocabulary that Peter does. Now, I'm not doing what I call Rorschach exegesis. You know what a Rorschach test is? That's an inkblot test. So you look at an inkblot and say, oh, that reminds me of a butterfly. That's a butterfly. 
Or that reminds me of a dog. That's a dog. And there's a lot of pastors who do that. They see a word and they say, oh, that word reminds me of this. And then they jump off the diving board into this other topic uh, just based on some word similarity. I'm not doing that. This is a whole contextual thing that where we have the word baptism, we have the word death, we have baptism into death, we have talk, talk about Christ's resurrection to glory, which is what we see all through First uh, Peter talking about solving the problems today. We need to have our, our focus on future glory. It talks about newness of life. All of this is connected to and grounded on understanding the resurrection of Jesus as the foundation for our uh, new life in Christ. So all of that to say, verse 18, when you look at all the different options, the best option that explains and fits with the context is that Peter is saying that when Christ died on the cross physically, he was then resurrected, and he goes to uh, probably at some time between the resurrection and the ascension, he goes to Tartarus and announces that there's been this uh, victory over the angels. And where he then goes with that is in verse 22 that Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, that's the ascension, and is at the right hand of God, seated waiting for the kingdom, and angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. That's why we can be encouraged. That's why Peter's recipients can be encouraged, because even though you are being unjustly treated and persecuted, Jesus Christ has defeated all of the opposition, human and angelic, and it's all been made subject to him, but he's being seated at the right hand, waiting for God to give him the kingdom, which will occur at the end of the tribulation, just before Jesus comes to the earth. He has conquered the problem. Because he's conquered the problem, we can relax facing the opposition and go about serving the Lord with joy and peace, focusing on the glory ahead and not being overwhelmed by the opposition we might face in this life. So we'll come back next time. We'll go a little further into what's going on here and the importance of the resurrection in Christ and and the basis for the Christian life, and then we'll get into an introduction into the angelic conflict and Satan's rebellion to God and how all that fits together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things and be reminded of all that we have in Christ and all that he did at the cross in defeating your enemies and that we are to live in light of that reality so that we can experience real joy and tranquility and peace and contentment in this life, focusing on the end game and our future role in your kingdom and not being overwhelmed by uh, the details of opposition or persecution that goes on in this world today. We pray that we might be encouraged by your word. In Christ's name, amen.